Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to our ERW uh, Rev War Reverie. I am Billy Griffith here representing us tonight, and I am joined by historian and author John Moss. Uh, Most recently, he has published the book, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, the most desperate engagement, a really good book highlighting uh, the Southern campaign, as well as focusing on uh, Nathaniel Green and Charles Cornwallis's winter campaign of 1780-1781. Uh, um, so before I go into that, I want to give you a little introduction into who John is. Uh, right now, he's an education staff member of the new National Museum of the U.S. Army at Fort Belvoir. He's received his PhD in early American history at the Ohio State University, and he's the author of several books, including the one I've just shown you, uh, and numerous articles on U.S. military history, including North Carolina in the French and Indian War in 2013, Defending a New Nation uh, in 2013 as well, um, The Road to Yorktown, Jefferson Lafayette and the British Invasion of Virginia, a very good book focusing on the kind of the road leading up to Yorktown, just as the, uh, the title implies, that was in 2015, and then George Washington's Virginia in 2017. So again, I want to thank you very much, John, for being with us here tonight as we discuss your book. But before we do go into the subject matter, um, in these author interviews, I really like to kind of ask the author a little bit about their experience, you know, what drew them to writing this book. So uh, going through your biography there, a lot of your Rev War books do focus on the war in the Southern theater, which is usually the theater that always gets neglected and ignored in, fa- in place of uh, the Northern theater. Um, so why the interest in there? And then what really inspired you to write about Gifford Courthouse? Well, I think you're right um, about the South traditionally getting the short end of the stick on, on coverage, especially in overall books about the revolution, you'd almost always see uh, Boston and, and, and the Northern battles, Saratoga, and then, you know, chapter after chapter on, on Northern events. And then at the very end, there's one chapter that, ta- that, that takes the whole South from Great Bridge to Yorktown. Uh, fortunately, I think that's, that's a thing of the past. And 
I think there's been, I, I don't know, you and, and the audience tonight probably would, would also have an opinion on this, but I think there's been a real resurgence in books about the South and the revolution, um, both generals, battles, uh, campaigns, probably for the last, maybe even going back to John Buchanan's book, The Road to Guilford Courthouse, um, and then, which I believe was 97, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there's been a lot more that's come out. Uh, even Rick Atkinson has now turned to the revolution. It'll be interesting to see how he handles a lot of the Southern campaign. Um, I mainly got interested in the South and the revolution because of living uh, in Virginia, North Carolina, Florida. Um, since 1977, I've, I've only not lived in the South for a, a five year period. Um, which means there's a lot of uh, a lot of area to cover that hasn't been covered yet. I think with the with the uh, publication of Green's papers and with Ian Saberton's collection of Cornwallis's papers, it, it's it's a lot easier to to do that kind of research. So, um, and my dissertation at Ohio State was also on the Revolution in North Carolina, and the reason I chose it was there was there's a lot of records out there if you knew where to look for them and not a lot written. So it's always good to have a topic that hasn't been written on when you're trying to uh, write in graduate school. So that's probably why I was drawn most to, to the South. And how about uh, tackling this actual book project for Guilford on its own? Well, <clears throat> I used to live in Winston-Salem for about four years. So I was close to the battle. Um, I, I went over there quite frequently. Uh, I wasn't really working in the history business, so to speak. But, um, you know, I, one of my advisors in grad school said the best way to learn about a topic is to write about it. So that when you start and you make assumptions and you realize, well, this book says one thing and that book says something else. And, um, and I like to write books for myself and for the audience. So I want the book to be something that if I was in a in the gift shop uh, or the bookstore at Guilford Courthouse or Yorktown, I would say, oh wow, that looks like that looks like something interesting. So I wanted to learn the details uh, of the battle um, and and to try to tell it in my own way. And one thing I do like about your book is that you do really draw in the historiography of the topic as well. It isn't just the primary sources. You are um, in your text, you're either agreeing or disagreeing a lot of the times with modern day historians and their mm -hmm. assessments on it. But talking about primary sources, you know, that's the hardest thing. And like you mentioned, uh, it's more so about where to find them, mm -hmm. not, you know, what they are when you do find them. But as a historian, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face when gathering Red War sources and then in turn kind of ripping apart, ripping them apart and interpreting them? Mm -hmm. Well, for people who have been reading and writing and studying the Revolutionary War for a long time, um, it, it seems like they tend to use this, or I'm sorry, some books tend to use the same sources over and over again that others have. Um, I, I, I remember hearing somebody make a comment about uh, the fact that Joseph Plum Martin seems to have been at every battle in the Revolutionary War and then some, and uh, he, he's mentioned over and over again but to try to get more of the common soldier voice. Uh, now that's 
much, much easier for the Civil War and, and beyond, Civil War through today. Uh, getting first person primary, either diaries, letters, that's especially for an enlisted man. Um, but you can find them. And, and the, the easiest way that most folks know about who, who do writing on the Revolutionary War is to use the pension applications. And so those are online for the most part. And I went to a site that had transcribed a lot of the Southern campaign Revolution War pension applications that had been filed in the, I guess it was the 1820s and 30s, I think. I could be wrong on that. And with keyword searches uh, with Guilford or Green, uh, other commanders' names, uh, I was able to find probably 60 or 70 uh, pension applications that uh, of, of veterans who had fought at Guilford Courthouse and who actually had meaningful things to say. Because uh, not all the pension applications say, you know, the unit, my regiment marched here, then we fought the British there, and, you know, my cousin was killed next to me at the battle, and that's why I remember it. And a lot of them are just, I served from this time to this time, then I was mustered out, the end. Um, but about, about over 50, I'd say 60 to 70 applications uh, were detailed enough and helpful enough uh, on things like the weather and the retreat and the roads and um, how many shots they fired. Uh, that was another things like that. So that, that is really a good place to go. And the other, the other source I use that's when I was writing my dissertation, it was not online. It was, it was, um, the uh, Colonial and State Records of North Carolina and uh, that came out in the 1880s. Um, and they're magnificent. They, they even have a four volume index, uh, which is great. But uh, since, uh, since I finished at Ohio State in, in 2007, they have been digitized and put on the UNC uh, library website under documenting the American South collection. And they're searchable and you can you can, you can read them in order, you can read them by author, by time, by date. And so that's another great source for, for anybody who's working uh, in the South, because it's not just about North Carolina, a lot of, there's a lot of South Carolina material in there too. And you're talking about those pension records and you know the things that these soldiers remember uh, when they do file. And it's obviously the things that they're proud of or the things that they're miserable about. Uh, like, as we'll be talking about tonight during this uh, winter of 1780, 1781, the weather and also the lack of supplies, especially on the American side. And then when it comes to the militia, maybe militiamen wanting to be remembered that they fired shots and did stay, stood their ground, fired away and did not just get, drop their weapons and run. Mm -hmm. So now we're actually going to get into uh, the subject matter of this book. And your book does begin uh, in 1780, well, actually before 1780, you kind of give a synopsis of the Southern theater up to that point, um, mm -hmm. kind of all roads have to begin somewhere. So you put us right at the beginning of the road to the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Um, so for maybe some people who aren't really fluent in the Southern theater before 1780, 1781, kind of paint a picture of the situation uh, in the South up to the fall of Charleston, South Carolina. Well, the British, the British started in 1776 with Clinton's um, uh, campaign to, uh, at Cape Fear to try to support loyalists in North Carolina very early in the war. 
that led to, uh, or he arrived too late to help the Battle of uh, Morse Creek Bridge had already been fought. Uh, the British then, uh, under uh, Clinton, General Sir Henry Clinton, then went down to Charleston. They were rebuffed in June, I believe it was June 28, 1776 at uh, Fort Moultrie. And um, after that, there wasn't a lot of uh, very active campaigning in the South. There was some, um, some minor militia skirmishes and, and uh, a 1776 uh, campaign against the Cherokees from North Carolina. Um, but toward the end of uh, uh, December of 1778, the British uh, had a renewed focus on the South. They captured Savannah. Uh, they, they attempted to capture Charleston, South Carolina. Um, so there was, there, was a, there was a renewed focus. They were trying to uh, tap into what they considered to be a, a wealth of loyalist support. And uh, they assumed that the loyalists were going to come out and, and in droves, armed, ready to go and help out. Uh, some did, most didn't. Um, but the, the British had some success uh, in the South right up until uh, the spring of 1780. And because of that success, uh, Clinton, Sir Henry, Henry Clinton, who was the commander in chief of British forces in 1778, uh, and to the end of the war, um, the British decided to refocus on the South. And of course, as you mentioned, they, there was a major campaign, a uh, <laughs> tremendous amphibious campaign that launched from New York uh, in February of 1780, uh, landed below, below Charleston, South Carolina, and was, was able to uh, capture Charleston um, which surrendered on May 12, 1780, with um, basically almost the entire Continental Army Corps in the South, and a, a lot of militia, uh, uh, artillery, supplies. It was a it was a very devastating surrender uh, of American forces. Um, I believe, uh, you know, it was it was really uh, it had the potential for really being the knockout blow to the war had, had things gone differently. Right. And um, so after that, uh, Charleston Falls, Cornwallis is going to remain in the South as mm -hmm. Clinton will take uh, the bulk of his army that he had down there with him back to New York City, but he'll leave Cornwallis uh, in essentially overall command of uh, the Southern armies there. And this is really um, Cornwallis's chance to get away from Clinton. Know that he doesn't have a good relationship with Henry Clinton, and it's his chance to have his own independent independent command, and at some points, you know, even go behind Clinton's back to kind of execute his own uh, personal ideas of campaigns that he might have. But so going forward, now, what is Britain's military strategy in the South, at least when it comes to South Carolina and North Carolina? It's their main objective. Mm -hmm. So it's it's often referred to in books as the Southern strategy. Uh, that may be too vague, or maybe that's too general, and that's debatable. Uh, but what they were trying to do is conquer and occupy, or at least subdue, a large section of the South. Um, now, part of the reason they, they decided to refocus on the South was because they were being told by loyalists in the Carolinas and Georgia, and also loyalists who had gone to Britain, 
that there was a tremendous amount of support for the crown in the South and that if the British made an attempt to defeat American forces there and also to really uh, subdue the patriots by making them uh, turn in their arms, um, uh, pledging loyalty oaths that they would not fight again and that they were loyal to the crown, um, that then, then the South could be reoccupied and the, the so-called rebels, the patriots, uh, would be knocked out of the war. There was also a, there was also by 1780, um, at the latest, a diplomatic uh, possibility that, um, that the war would end between the French, the British, Americans, possibly be, be negotiated by either Russia or another European entity where the fighting would end in the situation um, where the uh, British and Americans and the French would keep what territory they had at the time of the peace, uh, the diplomatic peace settlement. So the more that the British occupied when they eventually got to the peace table, the more that they would get to keep. And now that's, that's, it's not certain. And that's, that's not, uh, you know, a lot of things had to happen before that could have taken place. As we, as we now know, it did not take place, but there was this notion that that's what, that's what was gonna happen. Um, there was also the wealth of South Carolina that the British wanted to get back, um, uh, a harbor in Charleston that would allow them to uh, refit and resupply because by this time the French and the British, they, they, they were mainly facing off in the West Indies and the British wanted some kind of port or base to be able to, to, um, to support those efforts. Um, so capturing South Carolina, uh, that was the goal of, of the Charleston campaign. And then once Clinton went back to New York about a month later, six weeks later or so, and left Cornwallis, um, you know, Cornwallis's job was to secure South Carolina. Um, and when he decided that he was gonna move into North Carolina, uh, that really wasn't Clinton's plan. And, and as you mentioned, they did not get along very well. Uh, they were barely on speaking terms, really. Um, and, and Cornwallis was not a good correspondent with Clinton all through the Southern campaign. And Cornwallis himself too at the time was trying to urge uh, Clinton to open up another front in the Chesapeake as well. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Um, they, in fact, that's, that's what they had, what he eventually did is go to Virginia uh, to the Chesapeake. Uh, there had been a few campaigns, um, naval um, and, and infantry campaigns earlier, the Matthew Collier's raid in the Portsmouth, Norfolk area. Um, there was some, there was some uh, General Leslie was, uh, uh, was there in 1780 and eventually came to North Carolina to reinforce Cornwallis. Um, but the, uh, he wanted the Chesapeake campaign to be a diversion so that Virginia would focus its resources on defending itself 
and not send resources down to the Carolinas. That, that was his main objective, was to open a Chesapeake uh, front, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so now we'll jump down back to South Carolina and kind of focus a little bit on the Americans. Um, everybody knows about the disaster at Camden and how the Southern Army is almost annihilated. Uh, and it's amazing that it really see, it continues to exist after that. And that does show a large part, I think, to Gates, which he doesn't get a lot of credit for, right. kind of keeping the army in place until Green comes there. But um, following that defeat, what is the American situation in the South now? You describe that briefly. Well, there there was there was some uh, there were some troops still left after Camden. Um, a lot of the militia went home, never to be seen again. Um, some of them, when they were recaptured, both in North Carolina and Virginia, uh, as a penalty for running, they were actually uh, made to serve in Continental units for 18 months. Um, but but Gates Gates tried to regroup at Hillsboro, North Carolina, um, and was somewhat successful. Um, the supply situation was horrible. Uh, very few supplies coming in from anywhere other than the basics for food, but uh, weapons were in very short supply. Uniforms uh, had been really worn out. Um, uh, cavalry was almost impossible to mount. Um, by September, by late September, Green, uh, I'm sorry, Gates started moving a lot of his troops to different places in the state because it was too difficult to feed them when they were all together because basically supplies were, were, were being, um, were basically hand to mouth at that point. Uh, and Green, Green suffered from that too for quite a while too. There were, there was, there were few depots and, uh, and Gates, you're, Gates, correct, if you read Gates's correspondence uh, after the Battle of Camden, uh, he was urging um, uh, state uh, leaders to try to uh, get depots to bring in food, bring in beef on the hoof, and and um, but it was very difficult to supply them and keep them together, and they were they were in pretty bad shape by the time Green showed up. Okay, so in your book, um, now we'll jump ahead a little bit to uh, October of 1780 when Green is appointed. Um, you describe his appointment to command of the Southern Army as essentially a turning point or a critical moment in its own right of the entire war. Uh, what did Green himself bring to the table, and why was he the perfect man to help rebuild this army? Well, with he was he was uniquely qualified in a way because this war in the South was going to be one with logistics. They they had to have a way to try to turn around the horrible supply pro problem, uh, to get more men, men in uniform with arms, uh, with equipment. Uh, trained by competent officers, enlisted for more than two or three months. Uh, they had to have boats to cross rivers, uh, aid in the transportation. And Green was the former quartermaster of the army when he served with Washington in the Northern Theater. Uh, he had a lot of experience with, with uh, bringing, bringing, bringing order and organization to the quartermaster department up north. Um, he had worked in business in, in Rhode Island. His, his family had an iron making, uh, iron foundry and uh, made iron products, um, most notably ship anchors. And they traded uh, all up and down the east coast of the colonies. So 
he knew how to run a business and to keep on top of supplies and and that uh, which was something that was badly needed there. Uh, I think too Green had a lot of experience by 1780, October 1780, when he was appointed to the position. He had fought um, uh, at uh, Trenton, uh, Monmouth Courthouse, uh, Brandywine, and, and um, Germantown. Um, he uh, was really an experienced commander, um, which, which was turned out to be a, a prophetic choice. And you'll probably remember that when Gates was, a, when Gates was appointed the commander in the South um, after the fall of Charleston, Congress did that against Washington's wishes. Uh, in fact, they did not even give Washington a choice. Well, it took the debacle at Camden to prove to Congress that, hey, maybe we ought to consult with George Washington on this. He probably knows who the best general officer would be to take over. And, and he had no doubt about who that was going to be. Um, and in, in Green's correspondence, this published correspondence, you can see that uh, several, um, it was no surprise to him that he was going to get that position. Uh, and, and in the letters to delegates of the Continental Congress, you can see also that the Southern congressmen in Georgia and South Carolina were, were lobbying Congress for Green. And uh, up to that point in the war, it's definitely very difficult to find a, you know, a bad day during the conflict that uh, Green actually had, albeit mm -hmm. you know, Fort Washington and uh, giving Washington mm -hmm. uh, that suggestion to hold it. But uh, yeah, no, he definitely was like a man who was made for that position. And that's why I totally agree with you when you say it was a like a turning point or critical moment in mm -hmm. not just the Southern campaign, but the war itself when he mm -hmm. takes command. So with Green's army, who were, uh, you know, some of the key players um, that will be by his side for the next several months until Guilford? Well, one of the one of the things that also made it very interesting and important when Green was uh, appointed was that Washington allowed him to bring down the uh, Lee's Legion, commanded by Light Horse Harry Lee. Uh, Lee wasn't in as big a hurry to get down south as he could have been, but eventually arrived. Um, he proved to be, he was very young, um, and Green had two cavalry commanders, uh, one of which was Lee, the other one was, was Wa uh, William Washington. And um, those two, especially in the Guilford campaign and the race to the Dan, uh, they really stuck with Green. They were invaluable. Uh, they both commanded mounted units. Um, Green also brought with him uh, a, a, another major general, uh, Baron von Steuben, who, the, who most people know of as the drill master of Valley Forge. And uh, Green was actually going to put him in command of troops in the South. But by the time they got to the Richmond and Petersburg area, uh, Green and, and Steuben figured out that it was going to take a person of authority in Virginia to gather supplies, weapons, uh, recruit troops, get them ready to send down to the Carolinas to fight. And Green decided to leave Steuben up in Virginia to marshal those forces because he was a Continental Major General who would be able to tell 
Virginia militia commanders and logisticians and supply officers. Here's what we need. Here's where we need it to go and get it there immediately. Um, so Green also, by the time he got to his camp uh, at Charlotte, December 2nd, 1780, uh, probably one of the one of his most important, if not the most important officer he found there was Daniel Morgan. Uh, Daniel Morgan had a long experience in the revolution, uh, had left the army, <coughs> excuse me, um, I believe in 1778, um, and over, over a, over a uh, dispute of the appointment to be the commander of Washington's Light Infantry. So he went home to um, the northern end of the Shenandoah Valley and really had not much of a role up until the British invasion uh, of the Carolinas. And Morgan decided, well, I'm, I'm gonna put, my, put my, my dispute behind me and join Gates' army. And when he was promoted to be a Brigadier General, um, most folks know that he was the American commander at Cowpens. Uh, he was actually not at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Uh, illness and, and, and his physical condition finally made him kind of have to leave the army um, somewhere, I believe, at the end of uh, February, uh, middle to end of February. So there were some other militia commanders there, too. Uh, William Davidson, some folks know, is a North Carolina militia figure. Uh, William R. Davey became one of Green's uh, logistical officers. So he did have some talented folks there uh, in the South. Uh, Andrew Pickens, uh, for a long time, uh, led the Virginia militia uh, between Cowpens and almost to Guilford Courthouse. Um, but some big, some some names folks might might recognize. And uh, one person in the chat mentioned uh, how William Campbell too will uh, end right. up in Green. He he Campbell came uh, within a few weeks of the. Um, of the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Uh, initially, Campbell had reported to uh, Green, uh, Gates, and then Green that he, that he would be able to bring a thousand riflemen from what Jefferson called the rifle counties, which were all the backcountry uh, uh, counties of Virginia from, from Augusta and Rockbridge down into south, what's now Southwest Virginia, but also Bedford, Pennsylvania. Um, but for reasons, probably we don't have time to delve into here, but he only arrived with 60 men. So Green was very disappointed, but those, um, those riflemen were very important for the flanks uh, on the first line uh, at the battle. Yeah, so despite what happens at Cowpens, as you mentioned, an American victory there, and also Kings Mountain too, uh, several months before that, Cornwallis is gonna end up getting his invasion of North Carolina anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so to jump ahead real quick, let's, Briefly describe to me, you know, what is the race to the Dan that everybody always talks about, and what is its significance? Well, it's it's off, it's its significance can't be overplayed, but that hasn't stopped historians in the past from overdramatizing it. Um, a, a recent book, I can't remember the author's name, but it's called "To the End of the World." It was just published uh, last year. Uh, by uh, Westholm, I believe. Excellent book. It's the best book I've read on the campaign and race to the Dan. Um, what happened was Cornwallis needed to, to lighten up his troops because they had too much baggage and they were not able to catch up with the 
uh, American troops under under Green after Cowpens. So at a place called Ramsers Mill, which is on the west side of the Catawba River, the Catawba runs in this area, in that area, runs north to south uh, by um, uh, Charlotte. Uh, a lot of it has been is now part of Lake Norman uh, in the Carolina in North Carolina. So Cornwallis um, decided that he was going to burn his baggage and, and a lot of the baggage other than some wagons for ammunition, medicine and the wounded uh, was was burned. Um, uh, the officers, uh, uh, the officers baggage, uh, some of the superfluous equipment, camp equipment, uh, even even the rum was burned or poured on the ground. And he uh, needed to catch up with Green. Now, Green was on the other side of the river, um, having rejoined Morgan's force with his, other, with his main army, which had been over in Shiraz, South Carolina, uh, on the PD River, which in North Carolina is called the Yadkin River. <clears throat> um, Green recognized that he had to get a, a getaway from Cornwallis, that Cornwallis had been uh, reinforced with about 12 to 1500 men from General Leslie's command that came from the Chesapeake. Um, so Green uh, 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 collected his forces at Guilford Courthouse in early February. Uh, and on, on about February 9th, he decided that they were going to retreat into Virginia and to always to try to keep a river barrier between himself and Cornwallis. La Lafayette did the same thing in Virginia in June of 1781 for the same reasons, actually. So uh, Cornwallis started uh, started after Green, um, but due to the floodwaters in the Yadkin, uh, just just east of Salisbury, North Carolina, the British couldn't catch Green at Guilford Courthouse. So they started marching a little bit north and went through the Moravian settlements uh, near today's Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And Green decided to play a little trick on Cornwallis by creating a light, light contingent of his own uh, commanded by Colonel Otho Holland Williams of the Maryland line, which would consist of some of the Maryland troops, uh, the Delaware contingent, some riflemen, and William Washington and Light Horse Harry Lee's cavalry troops. And what he was going to do is fool Cornwallis into where he was going to cross the dam. Uh, directly north of Guilford uh, area near today's Danville, Virginia, there was a crossing of the dam called Dix's Ferry. And Cornwallis believed that Green would cross there because it was narrower and it, it wouldn't be as wide and flooded as it would be farther downstream. So Green uh, sent this light contingent under Colonel Williams to make contact with Cornwallis near Salem um, and, and start retreating toward Dix's Ferry as if that was the rear guard of the whole army that was heading toward Dix's Ferry. And Cornwallis took the bait. And meanwhile, Green, instead of going directly north, went northeast uh, to two of the lower fords and ferries called Boyd's Ferry and Irwin's Ferry. And previously, he had some of his logistical officers um, 
gather as many boats as possible along the river, upstream and downstream, and collect them at those two ferries for just this purpose. So you had the British following the decoy and Green heading toward the real crossing points. And Boyd's Ferry, for those of you all who know Virginia geography, Boyd's Ferry is um, at modern South Boston, Virginia, in Halifax County. So the British chased the Americans and uh, some of uh, uh, Williams' writings and Light Horse Harry's, Harry Lee's writings would say that the, sometimes the head of the British contingent was within a musket shot of the rear of the Americans. They could see each other's fires at night. Um, it was cold, it was rainy. The men slept every other day. Um, food was scarce, but eventually Williams went back, went back to the road that Green was on to follow him. It was very, very close run thing. In fact, on the 11th or 12th, I'm sorry, yeah, the 11th or 12th of February, which is only uh, two days before they Green reached um, Boyd's Ferry, Williams was warning him, you better cross because I don't know that I can, I can save you and I don't know that I can even save my own force even if I can save yours. But in the end, uh, uh, Cornwallis and his men were not able to keep up and the Americans crossed the, the, um, the uh, uh, Dan River about eight or 10 hours before the British troops arrived on, on February 14th. So after the Americans now cross, what does Cornwallis do? Well, the British got to the river and Green had started to put up defenses near the ferries and the forts because eventually the water was gonna go down, right? Um, but Cornwallis, they had marched, remember, from, from Winsboro, South Carolina, uh, to Charlotte, to the Catawba, all through central North Carolina. Now they were just across the North Carolina line in, in Virginia. Uh, these men were exhausted, broken down, shoeless. And so he, he brought his men to Hillsboro, which is south of South Boston, to, which was in essence, um, other than Salisbury, it was, it was probably the largest town in the back country. And, and he expected support there from loyalists that didn't show up and supplies which were very difficult to gather. And Green followed him about two days later. Okay, and um, there's kind of a, even another turning point in this campaign now is um, how, uh, I think it's March 10th, all of a sudden some reinforcements start arriving for Green and that's gonna change his whole strategy of uh, how he's gonna handle Cornwallis. Right. So by about March 10th and, and through the actual evening before the battle, the battle was fought, mar fought March 15th, even through the night of the 14th, reinforcements were coming in. So he received a uh, contingent of um, Continentals who had been forwarded from Virginia, uh, a new regiment from Maryland, the, the, the new second Maryland, some Virginians, uh, a lot of North Carolina militia were finally able to be raised and brought from the, uh, a lot of the Eastern counties of the state um, coming into Green's camp um, and also uh, contingents of Virginia militia 
um, under Edward Stevens, who was who had fought at the Battle of Camden and saw his militia really run for the run for the rear at the first shot. Uh, or um, so he was reinforced. His army got up to about 4,400 men. And by about the 11th or 12th of March, he realized that his, his, his critical mass, meaning the time when he was going to have the most number of troops, which he would probably never have that many again, which he was correct, um, now was the time for the battle. Now, the, the point I make in my book is that you'll remember that the army had gathered at Guilford Courthouse February 9th prior to heading for the Dan. And I can't tell you how many books, articles, uh, columns, blogs, websites um, will say that Green picked out Guilford Courthouse as the place to have a battle and everything else led up to that as a choreographed dance. And even to the point where an obliging Cornwallis attacked Green at Guilford Courthouse and that it was a four-run four thing, a foreordained location for a battle. Now, Green, of course, as an experienced commander, not to mention supported by his engineers, uh, Thaddeus Kosciusko, uh, other officers, they recognized that the crossroads was an important location. They, they, could, uh, they could bring troops to Guilford Courthouse. Um, uh, they could have an easy access of escape if need be. They could be resupplied. Um, it, was, it was wooded and open, um, but enough wood so that uh, British bayonet charges were not necessarily going to do the same thing they did at Camden. So many historians regard Green moving to Guilford Courthouse on the night of the 14th and, and camping there waiting for the British to come and attack. Uh, that is not true. And the, the uh, correspondence of a number of, of uh, participants on the British and American side, including Green, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, <clears throat> uh, St. George Tucker of the Virginia forces, um, some of the other folks who wrote back later to Jefferson. Uh, the, there's, some, there's some British reports that talk about it. Green, all, this, all these documents note that Green was on the offensive on the 14th and he was moving to attack the British who were to the southwest of him at a place called Deep Creek Meeting House. It was a Quaker meeting house uh, located um, close to what's now High Point in Jamestown, North Carolina. And, and so the, the reason why he did not attack Cornwallis but was moving toward attacking was that at 3 a.m. on the 15th, Cornwallis's army began to stir and the American cavalry scouts reported back to Green that uh, the British were moving and that they were moving back on Green's position at Guilford Courthouse. So once Green learned that Cornwallis had taken the offensive first on the morning of the 15th, that's when he uh, deployed his troops into his lines and waited for the British advance. Okay, so you mentioned those lines that he's going to uh, deploy his men and he's really taken a play out of uh 
uh, the playbook for Daniel Morgan at Calpens, you know, utilizing um, what he thinks and that they thought is the militia in their best capacity in a defense mm-hmm. in depth. So kind of briefly describe that deployment that his men are going to take up. So the militia had performed poorly at Camden. They were usually uh, of, of limited reliability in a, in a stand-up uh, knockdown battle. Um, many of them had indifferent equipment. Uh, many had no bayonets. So rather than expect too much from the militia, Green decided to play to their strengths. So in, in his first line, um, which uh, the battlefield was bisected by the New Garden Road, which in other parts of North Carolina is called the Old Salisbury Road, but in this area, they called it the New Garden Road. And uh, the first line consisted of, of North Carolina militia uh, at a fence line. And on their flanks, Green put in uh, the more experienced troops uh, to kind of prevent flanking and, and, and putting those experienced troops in the woods to be able to fire at the advancing British across the field. Uh, those were William Washington's troopers, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee's legion, uh, some of Campbell's riflemen. Uh, there was a company of Delaware troops, uh, Continentals. They were on the right flank with Washington. Um, a few hundred yards behind them in a wooded area, he posted the Virginia militia. Now the Virginia militia, uh, a lot of them had actually served in continental units before or had been on lengthy campaigns um, as militiamen. So they were a little bit bit more reliable than the North Carolinians. Um, And then behind them, several hundred yards uh, near the courthouse uh, at the intersection of the New Garden Road and the Reedy Creek Fork Road, which went directly north from the courthouse um, at a T intersection, he placed on a ridge his four regiment of Continentals, uh, two Maryland regiments, two Virginia regiments. So this is what we would later call a defense in depth. And the front two lines with, with North Carolina and Virginia militia were really there to blunt the British attack, try to um, bloody their nose a little bit before eventually they would come to the third line where the Continentals had been waiting, uh, they had been fed. Um, so that's, that's, that was the strategy that he adopted based on Morgan's um, uh, uh, deployment at Cowpens in January. Now on the other end, Cornwallis's army is pretty greatly outnumbered, um, but they do have the cream of the crop, essentially, when you come talk about the British army, you know, um, a bunch of elite troops, you have regular line regiments like uh, the 33rd foot and the 23rd foot, uh, as well as the foot guards, as Hessians, dragoons under Tarleton. Um, but describe now, what is the, those British troops, what is their fate when this battle finally begins? Well, Cornwallis also deployed on both sides of the road, and I believe probably because he thought that he that, that the militia that he saw in front of him would really break pretty quickly, like Camden. Uh, they Cornwallis instituted a straight a straight ahead attack, uh, not a lot of finesse, um, and advanced against the North Carolinians. Um, the 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 Carolinians. Uh, on the flanks and the Continentals on the flanks of the first line, they did very well. In fact, they, they caused some casualties. 
Um, uh, one of the artillery officers was killed right at the beginning of the battle by a long rifle shot. Uh, there were Highlanders too that were in the British Army at this point, two battalions of the 71st, that at least those that had survived Cowpens. And um, the uh, British basically broke the first line. Um, the North Carolinians took off. Uh, Green, in his post battle correspondence to various commanders, bitter about how, how they had one of the best positions uh, uh, that, that should have been a dream for defense, and yet they, they took off. That's, that's overstating it quite a bit, but there were, there were quite a lot of uh, Carolinians who either didn't fire a shot or fired one shot and then left. Um, so after the first line, the British moved to the second line, which was a much tougher stand um, by, the, by the Virginians. Um, it was in the woods, there was a lot of brush, so the British really couldn't make uh, these, these broad sweeping bayonet charges. Uh, it was not good cavalry country in that part of the battlefield. And the uh, uh, Cornwallis was almost captured because of the smoke and the mist uh, and the light drizzle in that fighting where the, the black powder smoke was really held close to the field due to the moisture. Um, eventually the Virginians moved off, but they moved off pretty in pretty good order, um, but they had stayed quite a while in, in, um, in, in terms of a revolutionary war battle. Some of the, uh, at least one or two of the Virginians uh, later wrote letters or, or in their pension applications, they, um, they noted that they had fired over 20 rounds. And for a revolutionary war battle where the British are coming at you with bayonets, um, you know, you've got to have some pretty good officers and some pretty experienced men and some terrain that's adequate for defense to get off 20 rounds um, in, in, in one part of the battle. Um, now, because the British were advancing on both sides of the road, they were, they were spread out uh, to the left and the right, uh, depending on the amount of resistance they faced, they got to the edge of the ravine across which they would have to go to get up to the high ground against the American Continentals. But they got there at different times. So on the left, the 33rd Regiment of, of uh, the British troops, they got there first, but, were but were their, their attack against the Virginians uh, was unsuccessful. Uh, so so the, the, the uh, American right flank was attacked, the regiments on the, on the right were attacked first. Um, other units started to come up, including uh, there, were, there were two battalions of guards, British guards, and the second guards had come up just to the right of the road. And they saw the courthouse and they saw the second Maryland and a few pieces of American artillery and they went after it. In fact, Cornwallis later wrote with, they, they, they went after that position with too much enthusiasm and they overran the Marylanders. The Marylanders broke, they were mostly routed. Uh, the British kept pursuing them toward the courthouse and captured the cannons. So Green's left was, was broken at this point. Um, however, there was a, there was an, we don't need to go into the tactics uh, blow by blow, but the first Maryland 
performed very well. And, and the, the 1st Maryland was probably the best American regiment on the field that day. And, and probably in the course of the war, the, probably the best regiment uh, that, that the Americans had in the South. And they tangled up with the guards. Uh, General uh, Colonel William Washington's cavalry made a sweeping charge from behind their own lines around the left flank and smashed into the guards uh, basically by surprise. And it was very desperate fighting in there. But at some point, uh, Green was not a gambler. And at, at some point at this time, he learned that the Maryland regiment on the left had been routed and didn't necessarily know about the status of other troops uh, uh, in his army. And he decided, well, with one regiment routed, we've bloodied them, we've, def we, we've given a good show. Uh, discretion is the better part of valor. And he decided at that point to uh, begin a retreat. And the retreat was an orderly retreat. Uh, everyone knew, and you can, you can, everyone knew that the rally point was the Speedwell Ironworks, uh, north, several miles north, northwest of the battlefield on Troublesome Creek. And it's interesting when you read the pension applications, uh, a lot of them all say uh, we, you know, made it back to the Ironworks or made it to Speedwell and they all knew where to go. Um, so it was an orderly retreat. Uh, Tarleton and the, uh, who, the cavalryman with his dragoons and some uh, foot soldiers of the 23rd, they pursued Green. But when they got to the Reedy Fork, they reached a bridge where the Americans had taken the planks up and also posted one of the Virginia Continental Regiments to defend that point. And Tarleton uh, decided that uh, he would not be able to pursue as he had after cow pens and uh, wax saws and places like that. So the battle was over. Green's men were in pretty good order, although most of the militia started to go home right away. Um, and the British went back to the courthouse area. And in 18th century um, uh, military custom, tradition, the, f the force that holds the battlefield won the battle. So even though Cornwallis um, did not destroy Green's army, he held the field. But as, as the day went on, it became rainy and, and darker. The British realized, especially by the next morning, that they had lost about 25% casualties. And the losses among the officers in killed and wounded was very significant as well. So the battle could be said to have been a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, the British were a long way from resupply and had not been resupplied since really since they had, they had left Camden, uh, South Carolina uh, months beforehand. So, um, it, it, it really was a, a dearly bought victory for the British. Yeah, so essentially took the wind out of all of uh, Cornwallis's offensive uh, capabilities. 
Now, uh, since we're approached eight o'clock now, uh, we're going to start to wrap this up. I do have one question I want to ask you about the battle that I'm sure a lot of uh, our viewers, who we've got a large number tonight, which is incredible, um, they're probably wondering is during that fight, uh, did Cornwallis order his artillery to fire on his own men? He did not. He did not. That story comes way, way after the battle. Uh, there is nothing in the contemporary documentation to, that that ever happened. Um, I believe Light Horse Harry Lee had a role in perpetuating that myth. But uh, if you read uh, Babbitts and Howard's book, uh, Long, Obstinate and Bloody, I mean, they do a tremendous job dissecting that myth and, it's, and, and are, are absolutely correct that that did not happen. All right. Thank you for that. You mentioned that word obstinate. Reading your book, all the quotes you use from Green, he seems to use it in every other line. Yes, yeah, yeah, one of his favorite words. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, John. Is there anything more you'd like to add? Um, no, I appreciate all the folks who tuned in, so to speak. Um, you know, if you maybe there's a way to contact me, um, Billy, that they could go through you all. If anybody has any further questions, yeah, or um, I'd also be uh, happy to. If, you, if anybody wants to get a, a signed copy of the book, just contact me, you know, through through Billy, and I'd be happy to happy to work out the details with you. Again, if you uh, missed what we were discussing earlier, um, we're talking about John's newest book, which came out last year, The Battle of Guilford Courthouse, most desperate engagement published by the History Press. Great book on the Southern Campaign and the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. Definitely recommend that you pick it up. Um, so for now, tune in tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. for Emerging Revolutionary War live videos coming to you uh, from the spot of George Washington's birth, exactly 289 years to the hour. And also some other reminders, our second annual symposium in Alexandria, Virginia, Hindsight is 2020, Revisiting Misconceptions of the Revolution, is coming up on May 22nd. So you can visit our Facebook event page or website for details. And then this November... Uh, the 12th through 14th, we are hosting our first bus tour. It will cover the 10 crucial days and will be led by ERW's own Mark Malloy. And again, you can find out info on that on our Facebook, uh, as well as the website as well. Um, so thank you, John, and thank you everyone for tuning in. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday.